Hello, book lovers. Welcome to the Little Pages League with me, Shanda Monteiro. This is the podcast where we meet with other children's book authors. Now let's dive into the magic of storytelling. In this episode, I talk with Esther Lopez, a multi-genre author with a wonderful way of constructing her stories. We talk about everything from UFO experiences to ancestral history, inspiration from life and more. Are you ready? Let's meet Esther Lopez. Okay. Hello, Esther. Hello. Welcome to the Little Pages League. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for having me. You are a pioneer. We are starting this off. I have lots of questions, but the first one would be, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and I lived there until I graduated from high school, went to Miami Dade Junior College, and then I thought uh, I had an opportunity to go to the, that was the first two years of college. And to finish my second two years, there were several schools, but two of the big ones were really hard to get into. And I saw pictures of this University of West Florida, which had lots of trees. And Miami is mostly concrete with some palm trees. But these were trees I'd never seen before. And so I thought, wow, I'd like to go to a place where there's a lot of trees. And as far away from Miami as I could get. (laughs) And that was about 700 miles away but it was still in the state of Florida. So I went there. And then after I graduated, I just stayed there because I liked it. And Miami's very different. Very, uh, a lot of cultural differences, uh, which is, I find that interesting, different cultures, different food, different ethnic backgrounds. And Pensacola didn't have a lot of that, but it was, it was country. There's a lot of country people there. So I discovered the farther north I went, the more Southern it got. And in the United States, the South is anywhere from, I think, Tennessee and down. But I had to go north to find the South. and Because Miami, you would not consider that Southern. But anyway, I stayed there until my husband got a transfer. We got married there. And then he transferred to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is in Tennessee. And so I've been living in Tennessee about 32 years, I think. So I spent about 36 years in Florida. Wow. So if I'm doing my math right. About as long as I've been living in Ireland. 33, I think, this year. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not good with math either. And did you always write? What did you study in college? Actually, I studied physical education and recreation. And I took a couple years of Spanish because we grew up, my father's Puerto Rican or was Puerto Rican, and he wouldn't speak to us in Spanish. And I think if my mother was Spanish, we would have been speaking Spanish because your mom is the one that talks to you the most. But we had to learn it in school, gave it to you whether you wanted it or not in Miami schools. They gave it to you all the way through, I think, seventh grade. And then after that, I chose it as an elective because I got A's in it. And I, but I had to study just like anybody else. And then I took two years of college in that. But then in Pensacola, there was nobody there that spoke Spanish that I knew. You couldn't practice? No, I couldn't. And so we moved, when we moved to Tennessee, there was nobody there either. 
Now there is. We've got a lot of Hispanic people to work because we have a lot of jobs and not enough people. And now we've got all this influx from our southern border that's mostly Hispanic, but not all of it. But a lot of people come here and speak no English. I will get a chance to use it now, but still learning it on uh, Duolingo because I lost it after all those years not speaking. Yeah, if you don't practice, isn't it? I'm like that. I used to speak fluent French. It was much better than my English. And now it's very rusty. I, I haven't yeah. been practicing enough. Yeah. People forget if you don't practice. Yeah. yeah. It goes like that, isn't it? It's yeah. a muscle to exercise. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to learn Mandarin. I love Mandarin, but it's so hard to commit to memory. I'm yeah. finding it very difficult, but I love the, the fact that the characters, the sounds are concepts. Very beautiful. So, yes, what about what got you into writing children's books? It was when my kids were little. I, I read to them all the time, and I read this one book. It was called Good Night Moon. And I read that book and it was like, oh my gosh, I could do this. It's just so simple. I found a course online. It was writing for children and teenagers. And so I took that class online. And then I realized it's not that easy to write for kids because you have to write a grade level. You have to keep in mind there are slow readers, fast readers, average readers, whatever. And I was struggling to try to come up with a story for my last lesson. And I don't even remember what it was, but I, I just put it aside because being I was a full-time mom, by this time I had three kids, and I thought I, I didn't have time for it. So somewhere down the line, I had a story that came to me, and I started writing it down, but it was teenagers. And I thought, oh, I, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was trying to do the little kid stuff. So I put that away. I saved the story, but I put it away. And when we were in the Gulf Breeze area, which is right below Pensacola, about it's just over the bridge and you're in another town. And when we moved to Tennessee, I was very sick with the flu one night and I got up and a story came to me and it was young kids, teenagers, and I wrote it down. And then I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, you know, uh, because I had more time because the kids were a little bit older. They were in school. And I started doing some research and I found a group, the Romance Writers of America, because this story had romance in it. And it was, but it was sci-fi about a guy being abducted. And I had a close encounter experience myself when we lived in Gulf Breeze before we moved to Tennessee. And I found the Romance Writers of America, joined a local group, the Smoky Mountain Romance Writers. And that's where I really learned how to write. The things that I were, was learning to write for children and teenagers was good, but that gave me more craft. Um, they had lots of classes. So I learned more craft, how to uh, do characterizations. And uh, I did some research, uh, plotting and all the stuff that I needed for more like a, a bigger story. A little children's story, sometimes you don't really need so much of a plot as you do with other stuff. And so I tried to gear my thoughts to romance writing. And that first story was a sci-fi. And it took me 
about 25 years to get that story uh, from the 36 original pages into a fleshed out book. Um, that was about 25 years. And then in the process, I also learned how to do self-publishing because it was really hard. I entered it in several contests and I would get mixed reviews like two, if you had three judges, two would like it and one would not like it. And they would not like the stuff the other two liked. And so at that point, I thought, how do you fix that? It's just personal opinion. So I just kept on writing. I just figured some people like sci-fi and some don't. But all these other stories I wrote for years, but then the children's stories came because we had this one little dog that kept getting in trouble. And he ended up in the vet clinic lots of times for different things. And my daughter was a vet tech. So she helped me remember some of the things he had gotten into in his short life. And uh, I just started writing it down and I had an editor look at it and she gave me tips on how to fix it. And so it was because it was a, a real life thing. My dogs, we had two dogs, but one would stand there and watch the other one get into trouble. And, but she was always his sidekick. And uh, I'm glad I wrote it when I did because we lost him a few years later. Uh, they both died like within six months of each other, which was sad. They were two different ages. One was almost... She was almost 15 and a half, and he was 12. But it was just the hijinks that they did, crazy stuff. And, and that's what inspired me for their story. But I didn't have that inspiration when my kids were growing up. It was like I had to dig, 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 and I couldn't come up with a good idea for a little kid. But when I wrote the one, The Adventures of uh, Charlie and Ellie, I had a step-granddaughter that was second grade level. And so I wrote it for her level. And then uh, the other two stories, well, Little Horses, we got three miniature horses. And I thought, my kids wanted a pony when they were little. And so I'm learning on the job, like, how, what do you do with these horses? And my husband, it was his idea to get these horses. And we didn't have kids anymore. They're all adults. But our grandkids were old enough to learn about them, but we realized they were too big to ride these horses. Now we have a four-year-old granddaughter who can ride them, but um, you have to walk her with them because they're not used to people being on their back. But we learned a lot of stuff about it, and I thought there's other parents out there that might want a pony for their child or a little horse, a mini horse, but you got to realize these things live to be about 40 years old. That's a long time. And I told my granddaughter, I said, you're going to, we're going to be a hundred years old when they get ready to die. You're going to have to help take care of these. That's something people need to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And then I thought it would eat all the grass that they wanted. Well, it turns out that there's sugar in grass, which I didn't know. So now our horses are kind of diets <laughs> and they have to have thyroid medicine for the rest of their lives. And they're not supposed to eat grass all day. And I thought, well, they like grass, but they're not supposed to eat it. And that's why I realized all the movies, you have horses in stalls in a barn because they're not supposed to be eating grass all day. <laughs> but I would have never known grass was fattening. I didn't realize that. I started putting some things in that book. Those, actually, all three of my children's books that are out now are nonfiction because they're true stories. But I made them in a fictional way so they'd be easier, to, more fun to read. And uh, the little horses, I put in information so parents would know well, you got a big yard or a lot or something where you can let them run around. 
that might be a, a good reason to have one. Yeah, sure. but but you got to know that you can, they can't eat grass all the time, or and you also have to know how old they get. And one of our horses, a husband gave him some, I think they were, it was things from our garden. It was peas or something. And he let him eat it. Well, they can get gas, which causes problems. It could kill them. And so we had to get a vet out there because he was having a hard time. And so I told my husband, don't feed him anything but the grass. <laughs> it's stuff we learned the hard way. I'm a city person. My husband is from the country. So you'd think he'd know better, but he didn't either. So I put things in there that would help the parents make the decision whether or not that's a good idea. And then uh, the last story was about my Irish grandmother who came over in the 1850s. Tell, the interesting... tell me more about it. That's the one yeah, I'm really curious. The grandmother, my mother told me stories when I was younger about these two sisters that came over, a Margaret and a Bridget. And so that's the name I chose for my daughter was uh, Bridget because my mother's name was Margaret. Uh, but when I started digging, I used Ancestry.com and plus all the information my relatives gave me. And they only knew about the sisters. But when I did the um, research, I realized she was the first sister in the family. But there was 12 kids, 12. And this mother come over with 12 kids by herself. And I thought, what woman would do that? <laughs> and then I realized her husband had died. It was the 1850s, so the famine was on, and the boys were all much older, and they took jobs as laborers when they came here. Nobody claimed to be a farmer, <laughs> so I don't know if they did that in Ireland or if they were laborers and there was no work. Scarcity of work, obviously, over the famine. Yeah, that and the famine, no food, and so a lot of people came over during that time, But but I learned that I didn't have just that one grandmother I, mean, I had all these uncles and a couple aunts and i'm going to do more research that book was just how she got here and i'm going to do more research and do an adult version of what happened afterwards I, i'd like to find out more information about my uncles so we will be coming to visit me soon well for <laughs> your I research had, yeah i did go to ireland uh, to write the story about bailey's irish dream i did go there and I went to the towns that I described. It was actually me, was Bailey, because I had the dreams, but I put it into a different uh, person. And uh, that was a fictional story. It was really, I had those dreams, and I just wrote about it as if it was somebody else having the dreams and actually got to meet the person in the dreams. But I just uh, went in May, and it was 80 degrees when we left here, and we get to Ireland, and it's like 50 I didn't have a sweater. Things were a lot different in 2007, traveling-wise. Now, I think it's very difficult from what I've been hearing. And the plane, I, it was just eight hours sitting in a plane. I thought, I would like to take a boat instead so I can get up and walk around. But uh, that was my first trip across the ocean. But I'd like to go back and dig a little farther. I'd have to go to the little towns. I don't even know which town for sure that they came from. I think it was Limerick that I saw in Ancestry.com. But because of the churches, they're the only ones I think that have the records anymore because of the big fire that they had. And so I'd have to track down each town and see what they have. But the stuff that they showed you on Ancestry was an exact picture of the records. And it was hard to read. 
somebody went through the trouble of translating it uh, or printing it out because it was all handwritten. And uh, so I'd like to do a little bit more research. It sounds like a really worthwhile book to do. Uh, that was just one part of my mother's family. There was uh, the Quins, the Conways, Fallons, and Gardeners. And uh, so I've got to track all of those and put it together to where they, they ended up in Nebraska. But I want to, wow. that's only one side of my mother's family. The other side is Czechoslovakian. So I'll have to do that family in another time. But I just wanted to do the Irish ones. And, uh, and then my father's family, is most of them are Puerto Rican, but there was his mother was Costa Rican. He had a grandfather from Spain. So that's going to take a little while. But he gave me wow. some information before he died. Truly multicultural. Yeah. Yeah. Heritage. Yeah. That's why I like different cultures, different foods, different. Uh, yeah. The culture itself, the people. So the adult version, I, I'm going to work on that this year and try to get the, all the Irish that I can and put dates on there. And then if somebody thinks they're related, maybe they can email me and we can exchange information. But I've met some people on there that are related to me that are doing research, but I don't know how long they stay on Ancestry.com because it gets expensive if, if you keep renewing it and don't do research. Because I might sit there for hours doing research and then forget about it for a while and take months before I get back in there. You have to so, make a schedule. Um, yeah. So do you have a, a, a writing routine? Yes, I, I should. <laughs> I, I did in my course of learning how to write uh, with Romance Writers of America, I started doing the snowflake method, which it's like you, you start with a little bit and then you keep adding and adding. And to me, it helps me focus because first you have to have one sentence of your story and then you've got to come up with an idea. I actually see images or scenes in my head. And it takes me a while to start putting pieces together to figure out where this is going to go. And so you start off with the sentence, and then you have to write three disasters and an ending. And so that forces you to focus a little bit on each of those. And then you've got to write like a paragraph from your one word, once it's like a 25-word sentence, and then break it into a paragraph. And then... You take each sentence from the paragraph and make a paragraph. And so you just keep adding on and adding on. And you get your short uh, synopsis, and then you get a long synopsis, and then you start writing the story. And that helps me because I have a hard time focusing. And recommend, have you heard of this book? No. Libby Hawker? Yeah. Take off your pants. It's really brilliant because <laughs> I did nano writing for the first time last November. So I wrote a novel and it's supposed to be a three part. And mm. so the story of the boy is the first part. I need to do the girl one next, which I thought I would do next November. But I do want to outline your books for faster, better writing. And it's yeah. really fantastic. It's very simple examples. You will get exactly what she means. So I'm going to do part two based on this advice. Mm. Tell us, what was like to have an abduction experience? 
I wasn't abducted, but I did have a, a spaceship fly over my car. Only it was in front of my car, and I was driving down a road for seven miles, and that thing stayed with me. But I was a campfire leader at that time, and I had my youngest was in the front seat. He was probably two, year and a half or two. And then um, I had my son and daughter in the back seat with a couple of uh, other kids. And there was a, a dad, one of the dad of two of the kids um, was sitting behind me with his little girl and his son was in the back with the others. They were all in campfire, the Sparks, which is like kindergarten up to about second grade. And at this point, it was the year before we moved. It was 1989 where there was a lot of UFOs seen in Gulf Breeze. It was on national TV. And we had just left from an outing. It was in the afternoon and it was September because it was getting dark early. And uh, th there was nobody on the road but me. It was just me and my car. And this thing was on the beach and it flew over my car and then just stayed in front of my car where I could see the lights going around underneath it for seven miles. Wow. And until we got into what you call light pollution, the intersection had... All these lights and buildings were all lit up. And, and this was a deserted beach, pretty much. And so having that fly over my car made me wonder, what would I do if I was abducted? And I think the only thing that saved me, if they could scan my car, they would have seen all these little bodies in there <laughs> and, and two larger bodies, me and the, the dad behind me. And uh, maybe they thought, that's too many people. <laughs> and so they left us alone. But I was, if I was by myself, I might have been more vulnerable. But uh, just the fact that that happened to me gave me the idea that, you know, I had to do, I had to write something about this. But that was in 89. And it was like 93 when I had the sci-fi story idea. Uh -huh. And it started with that. But I started off with teenagers. And then as I realized it was going to be romantic, I made them a little bit older, but in their 20s, early 20s. And uh, what would you do if you were abducted by aliens and then found out that you they thought you were a criminal and then found out your dad was the criminal and he was the alien. And then you all this time you thought you were your parents were from Tennessee. <laughs> it was, it, yeah, because I combined the Tennessee thing in there. And uh, that's where I got the story idea. Like, what would you do? What is that book called? It's called The Abduction. The abduction. I saw that was it. my first sci-fi. Yes, and uh, because I wrote it from a teenager point of view, I had to change it a lot to make it into where they're twenty. He's twenty-six and she's twenty-four, something like that. But uh, eventually, I think I'm. I want to write for older kids. Like my first three books are second grade level. I've got a fourth book that will be coming out that's second grade level, and then after that, it'll be maybe ten years and up to maybe maybe 13 but the, the story is going to involve kids that are not teenagers they're going to be 10 11 maybe 12 year old it, it's and it's really a story that happened to me and my siblings there's six of us and now there's only three but uh, something that happened to us I'm going to combine three different incidences in the story but it was I think the same person broken into our home but he grabbed my sister's leg. We were sleeping on bunk beds and uh, he grabbed her leg and she screamed, but I could see a man's hand on her leg 
he had cut a hole in our screen. And uh, this happened in Miami when we were little. And my parents came into the room, tried to calm my sister down. They said, you just had a bad dream. I said, no, I saw somebody's arm in the window. And they didn't believe us until the next day. My dad's wallet was stolen. While he was in there trying to calm my sister down, this person must have come into the front of the house and stole his wallet. And the next morning when we could see, my neighbor's mailbox was stolen and it was underneath our window. He was standing on the mailbox, cut the screen, grabbed my sister's leg to get her to scream. And while my parents were in there, he ran around the front and stole. Yeah, he stole my dad's wallet. But that guy's face, what I could remember of him, showed up at our house years later. We were still in Miami, different house. And he talked to my dad. And I told my dad, that guy looked familiar. But when I heard his voice, it was the same guy that used to call us up and say really bad things, filthy words to us. And we were kids. Mm-hmm. And we'd never heard those words. And it scared us. And we hung up the phone when he did that. But he called like several times. And we told our parents about it. But what can you do about crank calls like that? And we were little kids. We didn't know. There was no block this caller at the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was one of those old rotary dial phones and mm-hmm. I had no caller ID. So they said, just don't answer the phone. And But the voice of the guy on the phone was the same voice of this man that was talking to my dad. So I'm going to mix those together into one because I think it was the same person. He must have known my father somehow. But uh, terrorizing to us as kids, but I'm going to have kids work out the mystery mm-hmm. and uh, make it something like that. But uh, it was scary at the time, but we all went through it together and uh, we rigged the house with booby traps in case he showed up and uh, <laughs> we had to take everything down when my parents showed up from work and uh, they were... <laughs> Thinking we were crazy, but it was because the phone calls were pretty bad. And uh, and we, at that time, didn't put all that together. But I make these kids little sleuths where they try to figure this out. And uh, I've already got, I had a dream about it. So, is, is that after you do the Irish story? You can... the, probably, so. yeah. The, the, the ancestry story. Because uh, I already have the kids, it's called Across the Big Ocean. That's already out. It's a children's book about how she traveled. Because I had to look up all that information, how what it was like to be on a ship. And it was pretty crowded. And uh, they were, you know, you think, oh, you're going to go on a trip on a ship. And you think, I might be gone for a week. These people were on the ocean for like 30-something days. Can you imagine? In, in a crowded area where you have a little pot to pee in and um, there's all these people and you have to take turns cooking on a stove. And and the mother was cooking just for her little family with a little bit of oatmeal. They gave everybody rations. Or, that's pretty much all they had to eat. And unless they brought stuff with them and it, it w- wasn't going to last 30 days. But uh, they didn't see any sunlight or anything until they got to America. And uh, I just thought, I never knew that. That doesn't sound very much fun, you know, traveling in darkness for like 30 days in in this crowded area. But uh, that was educational for me to imagine what it was like when she was a child. 
but um, I want to do the adults version to see what happened to everybody when they got here because they all got split up and she probably never saw her brothers again. Uh, her little sister, I think she was put together in one house, the two of them. And the mother had two younger children. Um, Margaret was six, Bridget was four. And then she had a two-year-old and a one-year-old, I think. And so the mother probably got to keep them with her and the churches provided homes for some people. But these two little girls, sisters, stayed in the house and they had to do housework from the time they were young. That's what my mother was telling me, that they worked as servants in a house. And there was a lot of other people there, so they must have sponsored a lot of Irish people. But I have seen the census records of that because they list all the people in the house and their ages. And uh, that was interesting to see your grandmother's name on, on a paper like that. But I just want to go with the adult version, maybe connect the dots to mention where they went after that and what might have happened to them. And then how the other families came in into the Conways. That was my great-grandfather married Margaret. But the interesting thing was in everything, all the family, I mean, the um, census records, her age is shown as 15 years younger than him. And she lied on her marriage certificate and said she was born in, um, I think it was 1839. Anyway, she was 15 when she got married and he was 30. And that's the only time she lied because the dates didn't work out. And I figured maybe they wouldn't let 15-year-olds get married then. She might have looked older than she was. But everything else, all the census records with those two, it, it shows their family growing with all these kids. They had eight kids of their own, but their ages were always 15 years apart, except for the marriage license. And I thought, okay, that means she lied. She lied on there. You made the discovery. Yeah, because on, on her tombstone or whatever they call those, headstone, it had the, the wrong date that she was born because they were going by the marriage license. And she was a lot older than they thought. But, uh, but she was 15 years different from my grandfather. So that was interesting. But uh, I'm curious to find out if others lied on, on some of these documents because you can't change it. That yes, was... I have a, a little story like that, which I am telling people on my memoir. I'm two years younger officially because my dad didn't want to have any more children when he realized what kind of uh, responsibility it is. And he was a very adventurous kind of person. And so he told my mom, I, I don't want to have any more children. But here came me. They were, she's your responsibility. No, she's your responsibility. And by the time they finally registered me, they were told that if there is any mistakes or days that they would have to pay a fine for each day that is wrong. My dad just went, oh no, she was just born a couple of weeks ago. It was terrible when I wanted to vote when I was a teenager and oh. a real age I could vote, but my official age I couldn't. It was really troublesome. So you get all your inspiration really from life and you seem to have a, a very active dreaming mind yeah oh, yeah yeah well, some of, i guess most of them came to me part in a dream 
but I daydream too. I don't just at night. Sometimes I'm just daydreaming in, in the daytime or I'll see a movie or read a story. And I think, what if this didn't happen and this happened instead? And then sometimes I'll just start writing that. I read a story about this one woman who, uh, I forget the name of the story, but somebody wrote about this one woman who was time traveling and uh, it was an accident. And I thought, oh, I got an idea from that story where I'm, I haven't written it yet, but I'm going to write a time travel thing. But it fits in with sci-fi. And, and actually, I'm doing that in my next paranormal book. I'm smashing in sci-fi and time travel together. But I'm going to have a girl that's great. Uh, time travel. Yeah, time travel's like an adventure kind of thing. But it was all by accident where they, they have these carousels with horses and different characters and they go up and down and around and circle like a merry-go-round. And they said there's a prize if you grab the brass ring and she grabs the brass ring and it slips over her hand and then she's not there anymore. She's somewhere else. I thought, okay, that's her adventure. She's got to figure out how did I get here and how do I get back? And <laughs> I don't have that idea yet. <laughs> I just have how she disappears. It'll come to me when I'm ready to write it. But uh, anyway, I think I was picturing her as a teenager. So I don't know. She might change and get older. Who knows? But sometimes they come to me in little snippets, little scenes. And then I start writing down the scene and then other things start happening or other people. Like when I wrote the first book, The Abduction, I thought that was it. And then one of the side characters, he said, I want to tell you my story. And he started talking in my head about what happened to him, his past and how he got to be where he was. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I started taking notes. And pretty soon I, I was getting through that story. And then uh, another idea came to my mind for another story. And the same thing in my paranormal. I just finished writing Nephilim, which is a book that I'm getting ready to get that out. And while I was writing that story, another idea came to mind, like a side series, because I have the same characters these two police officers, one was an angel and the other one was a detective. And then he fell in love with her. So he had to make a choice between heaven and earth. And so he chose to be with her on earth. And so they had a second story that involved a demon and it introduced another angel. And that's where Nephilim came from. It was a side story from Dark Demon. And now I, my, I've got another series I'm going to come out with it where they're all working together. Two former angels, two women. Well, one is a Nephilim and then a, an angel. And uh, normally they, in my stories, I had, what if they cross the line in, in their behavior, then they're no longer an angel. And, but this one angel, because he fell in love with a Nephilim who's half angel and half human, he gets to stay an angel. So I thought that would come in handy as a detective. <laughs> <laughs> so all of them are going to work together as a detective agency and fight crime because he can do things that the others can't. He can bind up a demon and get rid of him. The others can maybe use their spiritual, uh, their faith and their spiritual. They have some powers and I'm kind of moving all of them into some. It's not really sci-fi anymore because people are talking about becoming more spiritual anyway and raising their vibration. And so that's the difference between angels and us. They are at a higher vibration. 
And so these other two former angels can work on getting their vibrations up there where they have more powers. And they're trying to bring their wives along with them so that they can vibrate at a higher frequency and have more powers too. All of us would have the power to heal, maybe telekinesis, but telepathy, if we were vibrating at a higher frequency. And so that's, I want to learn how to do that myself. So while I'm learning that, I'm going to put some of that in my books where they can try to do that. So we so we'll are actually learning, taking classes with someone. Yeah, well, I'm just reading, just okay. doing a lot of reading. I mean, some of the things I read about to raise your vibration, you know, eat more vegetables, listen to uplifting music. Try to speak in more positive ways. Uh, it's hard to avoid negative people because if they're already in your life, you can't get rid of them. Sure. Uh, so you have to learn how to live with that, but try to overcome the negativity. And um, there was like 10 things I had on the list of, of things you could do to raise your vibration. Meditating is one, but it's really hard for me to get away from everybody because I, I might try to be alone and then my husband will walk in the door and ask me a question and there he goes. Uh, it's like really hard. What is so, the weather like where you are? It's warm, is it not, in the summer? Pretty warm. In the summer, it's usually, right now, it's been thundering all day, which is if unusual. Just go for a walk, sit in the park somewhere and do your yeah. minutes. The heart room is open. I, <laughs> in my heart room, I have... Lot of the, the meditations at Yoga Nidra I wouldn't advise to do outside, but mindfulness and breathing exercises you can do anywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's time to do breathing exercises when you're walking, because if you're walking around here, everything's uphill or downhill and your, your breathing is changing just to get up. No, e even that, it's actually the, the best way to learn how to breathe properly. It's lying down. Because as soon mm -hmm. as you sit down, you have more muscles involved. Yeah. And if you're yeah. standing up, you have all the muscles involved. And if you're yeah. walking. Yeah, I have yeah. a wonderful Kung Fu teacher. And we just did, a couple of months ago, we did 21 days straight of one breathing exercise. And I love it. It's so good. Yes. You, you need to keep your wits about because I also have a, a very active dreaming mind and I have dream logs. I've logged all my dreams for 20 years trying to understand what they're trying to tell me. And I find it very interesting that other people, especially writers, have mm -hmm. that as well, that they get ideas from moments in life or experiences in life, of course. That's what you're going to write about, isn't it? What yeah. you know, yeah. isn't that what they say? Yeah. Right yeah. about what you know. Your next book is coming out when? Well, I've got uh, the Nephilim is uh, right now I'm going through the edits that the editor, she made comments. So I'm going to go through those and correct some things. Then I send it back to her and she cleans it up and sends it back to me. And then the illustrator or the book cover artist, she is working on the cover, but I have to give her how big the file is. So I have to format it. Once I get it back so that I can tell her it's going to be this many pages. It's going to be, most of my books are five by eights. 
except for the children's books. Do and then I can't remember. Vellum? Do you use yeah. vellum yeah. to, to yeah. format? Yeah. Well, the first book, I paid somebody to format it. The second book, I did also. But the third book, somebody told me about vellum, and I realized, oh, my gosh, the cost of the program is what I had to pay every time to format the yeah. book. And I thought I'd be stupid if I didn't buy it. So I got it. And so I formatted all my other books. It, it was really easy. And the cover book artist cost quite a bit of my sci-fi books. He was charging around $400 for a cover. And, uh, but I'm trying to work on this program. It says, I forget what it's called now. I just bought into it, but it's got some AI involved. And I thought, well, oh, is it mid-journey? Is it a subscription with Midjourney? I think Midjourney is maybe part of it. They've mentioned that, but I haven't really gotten involved in it. But I found somebody told me that they use deposit photos. And sometimes you can buy, you pay one fee. I forget, I paid maybe $39 and I got 100 images. And I didn't download all of them yet, but I can use those images for book covers. I used some inside of a book because I wanted to, I had an illustrator that lost all her images that she was working on. And so it, that book sat for like two years. And then I realized I could use these images, just look, search for all the sci-fi things and put it together. It's sort of a background book to my sci-fi stories so people can see what's in my head, like what I'm, I think this planet looks like or what these ships look like or their uniforms. And so. I put that book together and, and use those photos. And I thought, well, I can use those photos for cover books, uh, the cover. But I have this one woman who did the other covers for the paranormal. She's not as expensive as a sci-fi guy. So I thought I might see what I can find in deposit photos and see if I can use it with this AI thing to put together a cover myself for sci-fi. If I don't like it, then I'll have to pay somebody to do it. But I'm going to try that. But I'm trying to get the clock down because each book, the first book, cost me around $1,000 for the editing, the cover, the formatting. And then... And that is not too expensive. Yeah, that was a lot of money. And then... Uh, but each book's been a lot less. And then uh, now it's just the cost of ordering printed book and the cover. But uh, the sci-fi books cost more. That guy um, did a really good job. But uh, people tell me, oh, just make another cover. You could make another cover and see if the book sells better. And I thought, I can't afford to pay somebody $400 a cover and throw it away. I thought, you know what? I tried the advertisement with Amazon and I got a lot of clicks. I'm pretty sure the cover wasn't the problem. They just didn't click through to buy it. So it could have been the little ad or the blurb that I put on there. And I spent maybe $300 on Amazon ads just to see if, and I tried all my different books. And the only book that sold was my husband's book, but his is nonfiction. And because it was specific about the Smoky Mountain area and about black bears and something oh, that I happened. I saw that him. one as well. I saw it. Yeah, Bear Attack in the Smokies. Yeah. Yes. Um, he, his book sold with the Amazon ads, but mine didn't. And I thought, well, I got a lot of clicks. And that's supposed to be a good thing. You they can didn't analyze like 
the metadata, the data that you get from those clicks. You can go and check what people were searching for. In general, I've been doing a, a lot on that because I'm changing the cover of the first book in my children's series because sometimes it could be just the font someone used. It, it looked good to you, but it may not be what is trending for that category of books. Yes. Now they changed instead of 10 categories, you can only have three and things are going to settle eventually, but it will take a little bit of time for the, this is as far as I can understand what is happening. And I did like my cover before. The designer is fantastic. The illustrator is fantastic. But when I showed it, I did the workshop to check and then people will know romance, maybe paranormal, fantasy are such popular genres. But for children's books, was hard for me to find someone that could tell me what would you change in this cover because I got clicks, but they are not enough. And if I'm changing the font, for instance, and also the name of the book, because I, I thought it was obvious enough that the character is a dragon, the main character, and that people would see that. So I didn't need to specify it. But now I was advised, try with the dragon's name and see what happens. So it will be another few months of trying that out. So you've started publishing because I found that the amount of things that you have to learn is quite overwhelming. And you started so far back. Obviously, you've been doing it bit by bit. So you've changed, for instance, how you format your books. You can do it yourself because you got vellum. I got it as well for after I finish the children's project, I'm going to work on my memoir. And I, I got vellum because I actually love the subscription model. You pay once and then if they do update, they, you, you can still get the updates without yeah. having yeah. to pay a fortune. Because right. it's so much money goes into subscriptions of this and that. that yeah. Then you end up using for a week and then you don't need it anymore. So, yeah, I did support their work. I thought that is old school, but good old school for sure. What was the last book you've read or what are you reading now? Well, I'm on the, it's called, I think it's called the, the book or books of Enoch. I was just doing some, I was watching the Gaia program, Gaia, it's called Gaia TV or something. And they mentioned that book on there. It was a series. I sort of binge watch a whole bunch of things. This one was called Wisdom Teachings. And it was really about how we got started and how everything's geometric in shape. Or the whole world is all geometry. Uh -huh. And I never took geometry. <laughs> it was very interesting. But he mentioned several books. And I'm trying to get the books that he had mentioned. One of them he wrote, he wrote several, but it's supposed to be, it's just seeking the truth, really. These books of Enoch, there's, I guess there's several of these out by different authors. And this one is kind of hard to get into because you're reading, it's like reading scripture, but it's from Enoch and not the Bible. Sure. So it is, but they go into detail about how this relates to that, and I'm not even halfway through. It's just I hadn't had a lot of time to sit there and read it. 
But I do a lot of that kind of reading for research, like time travel and all that. I mean, one woman, she was writing a time travel story years and years ago, and somebody criticized her story. They said, that's not how time travel works. And I thought, oh, she knows how to time travel because it was all (laughs) made up. It was made up back then, but now, now it's actually possible. And it's possible, but they're not giving us that information. There's a lot of things that used to be science fiction, and now it's science fact. Yes, it's just yes. there's certain people holding that information from us. And I've been wanting a flying car since the 1960s because I thought the Jetsons, they, were, they had a flying car. And I wanted one just like that. And I thought, you know what? They're, they've been keeping that technology from us because there, there are, there's, they have the technology. They're just, they haven't let anybody make these flying cars. And there's spaceships out there that are really not spaceships. They're our ships, U.S. US people, have built the triangular spaceship, and they call it TRB something, and they have that. So sometimes you're looking up and thinking, that's a spaceship, and it's not. It's one of ours. <laughs> so God. there's a lot of things that are going on. People don't realize that all these crazy weather patterns, it's not just crazy weather. It's DARPA. I was only in the States once. You went for the 2017 eclipse. I'm an eclipse chaser. Oh. I was in Oregon, in Newport, and I saw a machine that changes the weather. Yeah. Nobody yeah. convinced me of anything different. It showed, uh, I think it was recent earthquakes or something in India or maybe. I think it was earthquakes. Anyway, they showed the sky and there was this like circular thing, light coming down. And that was their harp, the harp um, machine or whatever it is. And they've got all kinds of, and the military has bragged about it in an article. They said, we own the weather. Why can't they put out these fires in California? They're starting the fires. Mm -hmm. They're trying to kill people or destroy their lives or the fields or the crops. And they've kept rain and all kinds of terrible weather going across the country during the growing season that everything's planted late. That's why people are going to run out of crops. But my husband had to plant our garden like three times because it kept raining everything out. And I've see, heard I'm... about that. I, I read an, an article in The Guardian, actually, today or yesterday, uh, about that the crops are yeah. in jeopardy. Yeah, they couldn't plant when they normally plant. Some uh, plants like beans don't do well in hot weather. They're usually ready. I I usually have stuff canned by July. I haven't even started canning yet this year. And our corn is just now getting ready. I usually put corn up before now. And the tomatoes are usually done by July. I don't think I have anything canned after August. Everything's done like June and July. and we haven't even started yet. So we're not the only ones. This is a little garden for us, but we're talking farmers that grow all these crops for the market. And the bees. I'm really concerned about the bees, you know. That's why I'm doing these books for children about the bees and how important they are for our food. And And I noticed some different shaped bees lately. Not just the honeybee, but big brown, longer bodies, and they look really nasty. (laughs) 
It's really? like I've never seen them. Yeah. So I you mean, have but come and look at Rare Pollinators, which is the second book in the series where okay. I introduced them to the Carter bee, bumblebees, obviously honeybees. And then there is the Colette bees, which have like a longer tail with the black and yellow stripes are closer together. So they're very different bees. And some of those bees, their hives are not above ground. They are underground. Yeah, I put all of that in the book because I really think that they are precious. Someone can envisage little robot bees that will do the pollination, but you you won't be the same, will it? No. As a a, a real bee doing what they are meant to be doing. And and the, the cost for humanity, like fruit would be tiny because it's not done properly. I think children should know about it because I found really interesting that every time I ask small children, do you like bees? And the only thing they really know about bees is that they sting you and (laughs) that I'm afraid of them. And I thought, gee, that can't be right. They're uh, wonderful creatures and they work so hard. And even as an adult, I was amazed about certain things that I discover how they have a queen, but the queen has yeah. no say whatsoever. It's the hive that makes the decisions. It's surprising, mm-hmm. isn't it? There is always so much uh, to learn. So- yeah, and, and your, your book itself sounds very interesting. I have a little granddaughter. She loves to go to the zoo, the four-year-old. She loves dinosaurs. Oh, Danny. She, she's she can tell me all kinds of dinosaurs I've never even heard of. And I think she would be fascinated by something like that. Absolutely. I'll send you. I'll send you. Just wait a, Wait until the new cover is out. So at the moment... I like your yeah. other cover, the one I saw. Right. Yeah, I thought she was very cute. Someone said at the workshop that for children's books, you don't use script anymore. And I actually wonder if that is an American thing because in Ireland, I actually work in a technology school and even... The children in the technology school, which do have their computer and we have no books, everything is online, they do take notes by hand. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if in the States is different that nobody's using script anymore. Talking like cursive? Yes, cursive, cursive. sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because my older granddaughter, who's 15, did not learn cursive writing. And so I got her a book to practice because she is now homeschooling. And I said, you have to be able to sign your name. And she didn't know how to do that. So they're not teaching it anymore. Seriously? Yeah. I I thought it was very strange advice because in Ireland, everybody writes with their hand. And And so that's why I got that advice. You know, I thought it was so strange. And my first reaction was, what is this about? I don't understand why someone wouldn't be able to read this. Yeah. The whole generation was not taught that here. Um, and I don't know who had that stupid idea not to do that. But uh, there was a girl in a court case that I was following on TV. And they asked her specifically about, didn't you read this? She says, no, I, I can't read it. And they said, you can't read this? She says, I, I can't read cursive. And she said that in court and she was, I don't know, she's 20 or 30 years old. 
And this was years ago. So I don't know when they stopped doing it. It's, I don't know. They need to teach that mm-hmm. because Absolutely. it's, it's, you have to sign your name. Do you write by hand? I write my stories. I like to write with a pencil. I like the way it feels. And if I'm starting a new story, I'll write it out in pencil. And then I go back and put it into the computer. And then that way I'm editing it at the same time. Because I'll find stuff that sounded stupid and I'll change it. But every time I go back in there, I'll edit it again. Before I get the whole thing done, then I reread it. And then I'll check and maybe edit some more. And then I'll let it sit for a little bit. And then read it one more time before I send it to the editor. But even the children's stories, they're just like a sentence here and there because I wanted the image to be most of the picture and then just a little few words. So I sent her, maybe it's three pages, but the whole book will be maybe 26 pages. I don't know. She she has seen illustrations, so I don't know how that's going to work. Hard to to try and do something with a limited amount of words. Yeah, I try to keep mine to 700 words which is like two and a half pages yeah some need a bit more because i talk about a complicated subject so many layers in the bees yeah i I even did a, a resource pack for the parents with projects because i was actually inspired like you i do take stuff from my life and I remember back in, I don't know if you remember, in about 2011, there was a documentary called The Eleventh Hour. Leonardo DiCaprio is is the presenter of the documentary. And the thing that came out for me on that documentary was that there was this chap being interviewed about the way they say there is only about 60 harvests left because the soils are depleted and this and that. Mm. And this chap was saying that he knows about this mushroom that reconstructs the soil. And I was brought back to another episode like this in my life going, why aren't we all using it then? Mm -hmm. And the one before had been about a Japanese scientist. I I think like 15% of the world pollution is created by making cement. So Japanese scientist, and I do have a thing with Japan and and China and stuff. So I, I do love their way of looking at things. Anyway, this Japanese scientist learned how to do cement at low temperature And that cement, after you build a building with it, not only didn't create that much pollution to become cement, but it also absorbs pollution. I think it's 50% of Tokyo is built with that cement. Oh. And you go, why isn't the whole world using that cement? Yeah. So the second time in my life, I'm I'm listening to this guy, and, and his name is Paul Stamets. And... Every now and then it'd pop into my life again. He is working on these feeders because now they know what the problem is with the bees. They are sick because, you know, too many pesticides, this, that, and the other. And then actually need healing. So he created these feeders that will be available to everybody in the world. Every garden should have 10 and they give it to you for free. 
and you put the medicine that he makes, he's a mycologist, so he's a real expert in mushrooms. He came into my life again because one of the supplements that he has is lion's mane, and my mom has dementia, and I can't do without that supplement. Really does keep her a little bit together, that oh, together okay. to function a little bit more. Okay. And so... I was so grateful that then I discovered that he also had a project about bees and it's going to be incredible because it's going to be all the feeders will be tracked by satellite. So they will mm. know exactly this population of bees is drinking this much medicine. It will be a really beautiful scientific experiment or project that everybody in the world can participate. And I just thought, that's it. I want to, and you, I have it at the end of the book. This is my favorite project. I hope everybody will get their feeders because they got delayed with the COVID and stuff, oh, okay. the patent, because he's patenting the feeders yeah. and it's taking longer than what he envisaged. But I'm waiting for my feeders. So I want everybody to know about the feeders. Let's see. And you have medicine in the feeders? Yes, there is medicine made from mushroom mycelium. The yes. feeders are given to people or they can buy them? I think they are given. I don't think there is any cost. That, that would cost. be, yeah, if he's in Ireland, that would be expensive to ship them. No, he's American. Oh, okay. He's American. Paul Stamets, you, you haven't heard of him before. No. Please go and look him up because he, he has um, a talk on YouTube, you will find. I think it's called something like Six Ways to Fix the World. And every single thing that he says yeah. seems so plausible, so possible, that mm. I always wonder. I mean, people do their little bit, whatever they can. But I'm like, why aren't we all doing it? Is what I haven't yeah. been able to answer. So basically, you read a lot for research. And do you read different genres for pleasure than what you write? Yes, I've read romantic suspense. I like the historicals. I just don't want to do all that work. <laughs> then uh, I've tried to read more sci-fi lately, but it's really... I've got, I just read one and I can't even remember the name of it. I've been keeping track on Goodreads when I read something to, for that Goodreads reading challenge, I think it's called. I saw that. I, I don't use it very well. You see, I was like in my cave away from social media for years and years. And I'm obviously getting back into it, but I don't it know. Just, it makes me keep up with the reading because there were times where I couldn't read. I had so much stuff going on, but it also... It needs, it, it feeds me with exactly. ideas, not the same ideas, but sometimes something somebody says or it's in a book triggers a whole different idea for another story. And it might not have anything to do with that book, but it's just some, I, I daydream sometimes when I'm reading. <laughs> and uh -huh. so I get ideas, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to dedicate more time to good reads. <laughs> I, I have quite a few books to put into it. I, I just... I'm not very good at keeping up with everything. I, I just think it's so much stuff that we have to do. I was going to ask you before, so you've been pub publishing 
for so long. And it's very different now than what it was 15 years ago. What do you think are the biggest changes? Did anything get better in your opinion? I started self-publishing because I used to enter contests. The first time I sent off, I learned all this stuff from being in RWA, which I'm no longer in now. But when I was in there, they've changed. RWA has changed a lot, but all the classes they had were very helpful. But I would send off a manuscript. You'd have to sit there and wait until they responded. They didn't want you to send more than, they didn't want you to send your one manuscript to more than one publisher at a time. But uh, I sent the abduction to probably 16 different publishers, but they all rejected the book. And, but one, I had forgotten all about it because the story changed from the, the young teenagers to older by the time I finished it. But when I was sending it off, I would I only had like three chapters done. And uh, so when I finally started tweaking it and made them like in their 20s, I it was like 10 years later when I got a rejection from somebody on that book. And I thought it took them 10 years to reject a story. And I had already published by then. <laughs> and the book was different. And I thought, who has time to wait around for somebody to respond for 10 years before you send it out to somebody else? That's the way they used to do it. You could only send it to one publisher at a time. And then they said, well, maybe you could send it to two or three publishers, but you had to tell them that I'm simultaneously sending this to other publishers so they would know. And so I went through a period of that time, but it takes somebody six months before they responded. and so. This is what took so long to get the first book done, 25 years. It was sending it off and waiting, sending it off, waiting, trying to fix as many as 10 my, years for insertion. Yeah, days. for that. Well, yeah, that first book. But in the meantime, RWA had a whole series. It was in 2013 on how to publish, how to be a self-published author. And the rooms were packed because everybody was doing the same thing, sending your book off, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then if you get a rejection, send it off to somebody else and then entering contests to get feedback so you'd know what to fix. And by the 16th, uh, it was like 16 publishers I sent it out and I entered 16 contests and I got um, all the rejections were like two would like it and one didn't. So they had to add another judge because it was really high scores and really low scores. And then the fourth one was like in the middle. So I never finaled in any contest. But what it told me was, what I learned from that was that it was all opinion. Somebody could just love it or they could hate it. And none of the the comments were constructive, where it didn't help me fix it. And when they one person loved my dialogue and this person hated my dialogue, I thought, I can't fix it because I don't know what the problem is there. And uh, so I just quit fixing things. And then when I took that class, I realized I had to make a decision. And so it was actually 2015 when I finally got the book edited and everything. And I set up my business about the same time. And I think the actual date of the publication was 2016. But, But 2013 was when I took all those classes. And it took me a while to figure out how to set up the publishing business. I had to look at it from a whole different point of view. 
and I had to get ISBNs. People don't do that. They just publish through Amazon. Then you can get your book in a bookstore. I want my book in a bookstore. And even though people have to go and request the book, they have a list of all the books that are put out because Ingram Sparks is a big distributor. And that's the only plus. I could advertise with Ingram Sparks and then they put it out in their flyer and everybody sees, oh, this is her new book. Well, if they bought one of my books, I don't have to advertise every book. I mean, because that's getting more. It used to be $80. Now it's $150 for one little ad. But if they bought one of my books, they might buy another one. And I've had some sales through Ingram Sparks, some in Australia, and that's pretty far away. And those books cost more because it's so far away. And then they're coming from bookstores or libraries. And uh, the stuff on Amazon is just eBooks. And I thought I, I would make more money <laughs> if I'm selling in a bookstore. So I've got all my options open. I do uh, go through Amazon for my, all my eBooks, but they're also, Ingram Sparks is getting them in um, Barnes and Noble and all those other places. But I can't do some of the special deals on Amazon because I have it with Ingram Sparks. I can't lower the price for Ingram Sparks. So I just had one book that I think I tweaked or did some special deal on it because I had to, didn't have it at Ingram Sparks yet. I had the ebook out first. So I did a special deal and then I went, when that was over. That's worked out well for you to do it that way? I'm still not learning all of the stuff I need to know to do those ads. So I didn't make hardly anything. It didn't do well. I, did, I don't know if anybody bought it. It was just a, a special 99 cent thing. And I was going to make this one book that I never got an ISBN for. It was, I did it through a comic book company and it was my first, uh, I called it Vader Chronicles Companion, which is the back information on my, my sci-fi books. And that book was only on Amazon and I was going to make it free. I don't know if I can do that, though, but I'm, I can't get any more of those books because their price went up. But I did the Pedro Chronicles Companion 2, which is the one I used all these deposit photos in, and, and it's thicker. It looks more like my other books, where the other one looks like a comic book kind of thing. And so that one is for sale. It's, it costs, because of the photos and everything, and there's more pages, it costs more to print. But I think I have that at $15.99 or whatever. But when I sell my books on my website, I'm selling them without the middleman. I can sell them cheaper. The first book in the Vedra Chronicle is The Abduction. I could sell that myself for $5 because I have a bunch here. And the first book in the Paranormal is The Quest. And I can sell that for $5. But if they buy it in a bookstore, it's going to be like, $23.99 for the abduction because I added more pages. I redid that book in Revenge, which is the second book. I redid those two books because I put a chapter of the next book in the back. And when I did that, it made more pages, so it cost more to print. But if they want the second edition is what I call it, that's going to cost them more. But if they buy it from me at a book signing, I'll sell it to them for $5 for the first book and $10 for the second. But all the books, I've gotten them up to $18.99 now. It took me a while to figure out the bookstore's got to make a profit. And I was not making any money at all. So I had to change my prices because, Am not Amazon, Ingram Spark said they were changing the price of 
the cost to print the books. And so I took another look at it and I realized, okay, if it's $18.99, the bookstore pays me half price and they're going to make half back. They're going to make their $9 uh, or whatever. They're going to make a profit. And I have to make a profit. I want to, but whatever it costs me, I'm not going to make as much as the bookstore, but I'll still make a profit. And so I can lower the price of my books myself and still make a profit. I just don't have to make a big profit. On my little uh, website, I have one for the writing and photographic services, the publishing company. It goes through Square. So I can see, I get emails from them when I have a sale and I can go ship it. I can sign it and I can send it out to the, the people and I'll stick a bookmark I'm, in there. I'm doing that in my shop as well. I'm very inspired. I don't know if you know Joanna Penn. Yes. Yes. Is Pilgrimage. Which I haven't yes. seen that book. And this is, um, I met her at the self-publishing conference and she has a ton of information that is really helpful. The Creative Pen podcast. And I okay. basically, she gives me a lot of inspiration. So I, when I heard her talking about going through setting up her shop and that she thinks that's the future of self-publishing, that everybody will have their own shop and that mm -hmm. people can buy direct. So I thought I'm setting up all of these things. So I may as well set that up now. I like your idea of the t-shirt and the little character. Yes. I thought that were cute. In my Thank children's you. books, I might try, I tried puzzles. I've got a children's puzzle mm -hmm. for each of the, the book covers. And then the girl herself, she wanted to do a coloring book. And I thought I would look into that for her and just set it up with Ingram Sparks because they just eliminated that setup fee, the $49 or whatever. But I've got to see if they can do a nice paperback, but bigger. Because they don't have, well, at the time I did the children's books, I wanted it a horizontal, like six by nine wide, but they didn't have that. So it's six by this way. It's a vertical. Portrait, in, portrait instead of landscape. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I wanted the other way, but they didn't, I maybe I just missed it in their thing. But I'm going to see if I can get the paper is the difference, like coloring paper instead of being white. I think it's usually the the yellowish color, well, like newsprint. Book Funnel is a really good place. I think you do pay a membership. Sorry, I can't remember. This is why I, I, I'm asking about because I am very confused. But it, for printing, I'm mm -hmm. using Book Vault, which is the people that printed this. And it's, I don't know if you can see it, but it's just silky. The paper is so gorgeous and they are starting their distribution in the U.S. as well. So I'll be able to actually get Book Vault to print for the orders in the States. And the great thing about them is that they are print on demand. So orders, they're very good. And yeah, I've been setting up with all the advice from Joanna Penn because she's always up to date with what is going on. I found out about Mid Journey. I did play with it a little bit, but I used it, for instance, when I wanted to give the illustrator something to draw the dragon, to have an example of a dragon. And I should have it here somewhere. I did that on Mid Journey, but oh. 
it took about a hundred prompts until I got one that I liked. In fact, I got three that I liked and they're still in the shop as the legacy t-shirt because I got the three dragons and I said, a little dragon that looks like any of these will do. So it was very helpful in that way, but I don't really use it. And I would like to talk with a professional about the memoir covers because I, I have a picture from an eclipse which is going to become a rare picture because I don't know if you know that the orbit of the moon is changing. So in about, I don't know if it's 200 years or 300 years, we won't have perfect eclipses where you get the diamond ring. We'll just have the ring. So it's, and it's a rare picture as well because it's framed with water. I did that one from Madagascar in 2001. And if the west coast of Madagascar faces the the Mozambique Channel and the eclipse happened at, I don't know, 42 degrees in the horizon. So I have a perfect framing of water and the diamond on the eclipse. And this is what I wanted to be the covers of my books, of the memoir collection. Yeah. People say that maybe they should be design because I've divided it into teams. It's the book of Africa, the book of dreams, the book of heroes. So they all have a team. So maybe they're right, but I'll definitely get an opinion from a professional. Yes. If your life were a book, what title would you give it? Oh my gosh. Probably the adventures of Esther. I, I look at a lot of things as adventures because that's, and that's part of my sci-fi. It's not just sci-fi, it's a sci-fi adventure romance because they're on some kind of an adventure and there's usually a romance. There's, yeah, there's adventure in my paranormal too, adventure romance, paranormal adventure romances. And they're starting to become more with the police because my husband was in law enforcement. I was a dispatcher in law enforcement for the park service. It's not the same as a police officer for me, but it's just enough to know some of the routines and things like that. But I, I've noticed that my stories are tending to go that way. And it, it seems like cowboys used to be adventurous and now police officers are the new cowboys because there's all these things happening. And I just look at things as an adventure. Like <laughs> I almost drowned one time. I fell on my, our boat capsized. my husband and I, he was stuck under the boat. So my son was rescuing him and he pushed me off to hang on to, it was a kayak. I was hanging on to my granddaughter's kayak and she was so worried. She was maybe 12 at the time, maybe 13. And she said, grandma, grandma, this is scary. I said, just look at it as an adventure. And I was hanging onto her boat and I thought, I just, I lost my glasses. I, I could still see her. I just couldn't read anything, but I never was fearful. The whole time. I mean, I knew how to swim, but I didn't even think to do it. I was just living in the water. And uh, so I hung onto her boat and she was paddling along, but the river, what do you call it? The stream, it was a current. Yeah. It was going pretty fast. So we didn't have to paddle except to steer the boat. And we were going downstream whether we wanted to or not. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we just got, we got out on the side and uh, we were waiting to see if my son and husband were okay. And uh, some other boater came along and we just told my husband needs help. <laughs> and they, but that was weird. I think God sent them because these two guys are riding in a boat up a river with no fishing gear at all. They're just driving in a boat and they went up there. They've, 
found what was going on. I think they took my husband to my next door neighbor's house because our boat sunk. And they got my neighbor's boat, which is wider. Ours was one of those narrow boats and it was easy to tip over. And his had a wider bottom. And he came back in his boat and those two guys went on and they said, oh, we helped him. And they found my a shoe I lost. <laughs> And uh, they were okay. My husband was okay. But my granddaughter said she'd had enough of kayaking. And so we all got in the boat and and went back to our house. And my son and, and uh, his girlfriend had to continue on with their boat. And we uh, ended up meeting them farther down the river. But we had to get a truck to get them and their boats out. And, and I just told what my an adventure. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, it was just an adventure. There was nothing boring about this day. <laughs> but it, it seems like... You'll I, remember I, it forever. Yeah, but I've never been bored. I, I hate to hear somebody say they're bored because there's always something to do. Yeah, I can find I'm one of those people as well. I, I yeah. can't understand the word. You know? Yeah, yeah. How can you yeah. say that? There is so much yeah. to do. And so little time, isn't it? I know. It's like I keep running out of time. I don't have time to do all the stuff I want to do. So I have to make lists. If I don't get it done today, I make an arrow and do it, try to do it tomorrow. So that there's always something to do. But uh, even if I don't want to do it, I can find something else to do instead. I never get bored. But yeah, yeah, I think of it as adventures. Mine, like, that's where light, shadow, and ink comes from. Light and shadow is photography. I always um, love pottering around with the camera. In fact, this modern digital thing made me lazy. But now I don't carry a camera. I just carry my iPhone. And yeah, the ink is the writing part. So light shadow yeah. and ink is my, my version of your yeah. adventure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, see, I had a camera around my neck when I was in the water and camera I had to send it off to get it fixed and actually no I set it on my counter and just let it sit there for a while because I couldn't see anything in the lens it was all messed up I sent the lens off and they said they couldn't fix it so I had to order another lens but the camera survived and I actually took a picture just before that happened <laughs> and all those pictures were good brilliant and I'd really rather have a camera too than the phone because I can get wider angles with the yes, camera. and it's different. You can change yeah. lenses. You can do yeah. lots of things. What what camera do you have? It's a Canon. I forget. I've had it for a long time, but I should memorize it. But it's a EOS Rebel T2i. This is the one that drowned with me. Wow. Almost drowned. The camera dried out, but it was the yeah. lens that didn't make it. I had to get a new lens. Sure. So there's a lot of, we live on a river the one that we fell in. And there's just like today, we just saw two deer across the river with their little babies. And so a lot of things you could take pictures of. And there's eagles flying around all the time. Really? Bald eagles. Yeah. That's funny because I just saw last night, the last picture I looked at was uh, someone did the video about incredible things that they have seen. And one of them was a back door and the stairs, and on the sides of the stairs going down, there was six huge eagles. You know, and the, the caption was, imagine opening your door to this. And oh, it is God. quite spectacular, isn't it? What kind of eagles do you have there? The bald eagles? 
Bald eagles. Okay. Yeah. And one time I didn't have my camera with me, but I watched a bald eagle teaching his three young teenagers because they were like the brown. They weren't all the white part. Uh He was teaching how to catch a fish in the river right in front of my backyard. Wow. And I watched him. He dove in, got a fish, flew over to the bank and dropped it on the bank. And here's the three of them, the younger ones, on a fence watching. So one at a time, they would go out and fly down, try to get a fish. One caught a fish, but he dropped it before he got to the bank and it slid back in the river. The other two grabbed one, but they dropped it before they got out of the way from the river. The other inexperienced, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting because I never saw an eagle teaching his young ones how to catch a fish. And these are, they were almost as big as the bald eagle. They just didn't have the, they were all brown. And uh, I thought, you can't see that. I wish I had my camera with me, but it was, we had so many trees in the way. I was watching between the trees and the camera probably wouldn't have been able to zoom in close enough to see what they were doing. But that was fascinating. Yes. And, and it's the worst day to forget your camera, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I saw golden eagles once up in Donegal. Oh, I, I had brought my camera. But I had left it and for some reason gone without it. And I've never seen one since. Oh, no. That's probably, that's in 2004. So it's almost Mm. 20 years since I've seen Golden Eagle. Yeah. So what um, magical powers would you like to have if you could have one? Telekinesis, I think. And healing. Yeah. I have some characters that have that in the story. The, the one guy, he can take energy and move things or he can bring things to him. So that would be handy. But I like the healing. The One of my characters in the sci-fi book, she is a healer and she'll pray over people and completely heal them from whatever injuries. How did you we, come up with that character? She was the one that accidentally abducted the other guy because she mistook him for a criminal because he looks just like the criminal, but it turns out that was his father. You're not spoiling the book too much, are you? (laughs) She's like a a Native American, only she's not from America. She's from another planet. And she is what we would call American Indian, but she is from another planet. And and they believe in that the spirit and all this stuff. Amazing culture, American Indian. When I was little, I used to, I have, this is one of the chapters in my memoir that we used to love going to watch movies, like just a sheet against the wall and the projector. It was real magic. We'd obviously watch cowboys and Indian movies. And mm-hmm. I was shocked that the Indians never won. And yeah. I, my dad have to go and watch that, the movie again. And he, we'd go and they obviously the same movie they lost again, but I couldn't understand why. I thought that if I kept going back to watch it, they will eventually win. Yeah. Did you watch Outlander? No, I didn't actually get to see that. Oh, really? Uh, I think it's a real treat. Really? Yeah. Honestly. And they they have obviously American Indians in there because they go from Scotland to America and they're really wonderfully portrayed. I'm on season seven now. I'm waiting for Friday. Next episode. Yeah. Oh, okay. Enjoyed that very much. Wasn't it time travel? 
It is time travel as well. And it's really well done. I, I really enjoy it. I did film school, trained as a filmmaker before I trained as a teacher. And one of my classmates was from Scotland. It was actually one of the most international years. We, we had someone from Australia, someone from Scotland, me that was born in Africa and I wasn't in, in Ireland that long at that stage. So when I'm in Scotland, in, in the series, I'm thinking about my friend in Scotland. Yeah. I love the Scottish accent. And then when they're in America, I love the, the wardrobe for the American Indians. And one of the characters, which is a Scottish boy that comes to live with the Mohawk and adapts perfectly because he's a Highlander of the 18th century. It's yeah. really nice. I'm really enjoying Outlander for sure. I didn't know they went to America. I thought it was all in Scotland. No, they do in the series, series seven, which is the one I'm on now. The war is about to begin and we know who is going to win. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And so does, do they main characters yeah. because she comes from the future and she has told them what's going to oh. happen. Okay. Yeah. I might have to watch it now. My husband doesn't like sci-fi or anything like that. So if he's got the TV on and I want to see something, I just have to go to another room. We have another TV, but I don't always leave the room and watch something else, which sure. I probably should. But, but I missed a lot of series that way. Just because I'll just go read a book or something instead. Yeah, but, I, um, I don't actually watch many... Um, Western things. I, I prefer Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. But of the Western series that I watch, I, I definitely am enjoying Outlander a lot. And do you have Netflix? I have a limited Netflix, but uh, is it on there? Highlander? I, Outlander? It, it, it is. Probably the first four series are already there, but... If, if you like um, fantasy, I watched last year. It's a low-budget Chinese thing. It's called Love Between Fairy and Devil. Oh, I've and not ever heard of that. It's, it is a delightful fantasy where the actors and their enjoyment of playing the characters make the whole thing really worthwhile because... Last year, I don't know if you remember, but it was the, is it prime time or whatever other channel did the before Lord of the Rings and they had so much money. I think it's actually Amazon, prime time, Amazon and huge budget. And yes, the computer generated stuff is incredible, but. I was so much more enjoying, so much more watching something that was low budget, that you can see that the people cared for the project, that the actors are into their characters, and they're all very young cast as well, which I thought was really refreshing. So I, I'd recommend those two. Oh, yes. I watched the, uh, Don, I think it's called Don May or something. It's Chinese stories and my granddaughter told me about she's read the mangas and the don maze i think it's what they call it 
the Chinese right, version. I'll check it out. Ma- she, Ma- she's normally Japanese, isn't it? But yes, there, there yeah. is some some Japanese series are very popular in China, and they do do versions of them. What was it? I, I just saw a really good one about the the development of gaming in China. Uh-huh. So the crew of the 1980s and 90s, and then and there is a connection between them. If you want to know, that is there is a, a time travel element to it as well, oh, okay. although it's not really time travel, but they meet in the game and it's really well done. I'll send you the name of that. I think it's called Crossfire because the game that made the first Japanese serious players the game that they were playing, I think it was called Crossfire. And okay. the place to to watch, if you uh, don't find Fairy and Devil on Netflix, because our Netflix is whatever, Ireland or maybe Europe, you probably have different things on. You can go on a site called wiki.com. Wiki.com. V-I-K-I dot com. And you pay like it's four fifty a month, and you, you can pay for a month and watch the whole series for four fifty. It's quite okay. reasonable. And do you have like surprising reaction or feedback from a young reader? Because I, I already know that you were expecting the grown ups to give you feedback so that you could fix the books, yeah. but you didn't get yeah. it. What about from a young reader? I haven't had any from young readers. I had some people who, I have a newsletter I get uh, get out, and then I have a contest in it every month. And one of the winners won a children's book. She says, my granddaughter will love this. But that's all I heard. I didn't hear from the granddaughter. Oh, um, tell us about your competition every month. Yeah, I have two, actually. One newsletter is, I call it the VIP newsletter, for the people who actually read my books and do reviews. And they've been waiting because I didn't have any books for a while. And then the other one, I call it the reader's group because it's everybody else. And I'll have a different contest in each one. But the VIP people, since they get free books anyway, just for reviewing them, I usually give them an Amazon card. You can get like three of them for $30 in the grocery store. And so uh, I'll give them one of those. I know that they're not going to buy my books because I get them for free, but I'll give them stuff like bookmarks or I make little things. I have galaxy bags I make and I'm selling on my website. And I give them one of those. I get, I've made some earrings, uh, little alien earrings. Yeah. I've done uh, wine charms. I'll do stuff like that with the card. And the ones in the readers group will get their choice of one of my books. And, uh, but I'll ask a question. And I say, anybody who responds will get their name in the drawing. It doesn't matter what they say. So that gets more people involved in clicking on the newsletter and just responding. And some of them will just uh, like, I think one question was, what's your favorite thing to do for the 4th of July, which we celebrate here as our birthday? And then some people, they just told us, oh, they, almost everybody will have something on the grill. They'll barbecue something and they'll go watch the fireworks. So almost everybody does the same thing. But every now and then somebody will say something different. And just because 
I, I just want to see what everybody else does. But uh, everybody who entered put their name in a bag, I, I write their name on paper, put it in a bag, shake it up, and I'll draw a name. And whatever name is on there, I announce it in the next newsletter. And then they have to respond to tell me what they want in their address, and I mail it to them. And people who've been part of my newsletter for a while know if they respond, they have a chance. And But the VIP, I don't have as many people in that group. So it's the same people winning over and over again. Okay. So I think I'm probably buying somebody's books, but they, they won't be buying mine because they get them for free. I, when I launch them, I leave them at a low price, like a token price. I think I figured out actually how to do 99 cents because we couldn't do 99 cents for children's books. So it had to be at 125 or one night oh. in the States, so that they are, what are they called? Not qualified reviews in the sense that people, oh. Amazon knows that they paid for the book. So okay. okay. How I found a, a way to try and get people to review it because oh. they check it out for almost for free, really. Yeah, but I didn't work all that well because it, yeah. it, it didn't get that many sales. But maybe people don't know about it yet enough. Marketing is a whole other thing oh, besides publishing and writing. You got to think differently. I, yeah. I've worked in retail stores, so I know the kind of things that they do to do a sale. But it takes a whole lot of time to do the marketing for all the books. So I'm not really great on marketing right now i'm just i would like to do better but i'm I, learning I think i'm, have I'm to learning about amazon ads and i probably have i don't know at least 40 because my partner is quite good with technology so he helps me but we have about 40 ads and none has worked yet but they, they well, do I, say that with amazon you have to be patient when, once you get all the back end stuff sorted out and fine-tuned that then things will start moving. Yeah, but they, they're making all that money. And I think I did it for months and months and well, spent hundreds of dollars. Amazon is a bit better than... I think Facebook is very expensive. Amazon, yeah. you only pay for the actual clicks. Yeah. So at least but someone I mean, I, got to know about the book. <laughs> yeah, but I spent over $300, and it was for several months to not make any money. I sold maybe two of my husband's books, and that was none of my books sold. But I did a face, I did a couple Facebook ads for like $50, and it was per click. And I tried to get as many people as I could in the age range that the stories were about in their 20s, the 30s. And I did that like in January for about three weeks, like $50 for one week, another $50, and maybe I did a hundred one time. But I started seeing a a bump in sales in February. So I thought that had to be because of the ads because I didn't do anything else. Uh -huh. So I might try it again, but I might try at a lower rate, like $25, and just try to push the books like every couple weeks, do some something and see if that increases the sales because I did make a little bit more money through Amazon and Ingham Sparks in the month of February. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I just, I've been so busy doing, just writing the books and stuff. I hadn't had time to sit down and, and work out a program for that. So but do I think you, I, you write I every day then? 
I didn't quite. I ask you about, do you have yeah. a routine? You don't really, but you do write every day. Not for my stories. I'll write something in my planner. I'll write notes. I have to write something, just physically write. But for my books, I might go a couple of days, unless I'm really interested, uh, not interested, but in a scene or whatever, then ideas start coming to me. So I have to sit down and, and write something in there. But I either write it longhand or if it's something that I've got to go back and fix, I'll do it on the computer. But I like to do the first batch all longhand. And then because right now I've got I'm just editing one story that I have to get back that's already written and then trying to finish the snowflake for two others. And then I can actually sit down and start writing those. I don't, it's part of the writing process and I've been working on it, but I don't do it every day. Sometimes I'll do a whole bunch for several days and then nothing for several days, but I, I would like to do it every day, but something always happens. That's why I have all these adventures. <laughs> My yes. husband will come in and say, I need you to help me do something. And then there goes you, my writing. You know that there is some research. In fact, I think I, I made a comment on it on my newsletter on Substack that there, there is something about writing with your hands, by hand. And I, I do, I try and do at least 10 minutes every day by hand. And of course, I do the planners and the lists and all the rest. Mm -hmm. I, I don't do any of that on the computer. It's all on something physical that I can look at. But there is something, a connection between yeah. your mind, your heart, your hand and the movement. And yeah. I, I find it quite beautiful. And do you have a favorite writer? Because I've just fallen in love. And this is what I love about reading. This is a memoir. It's called Departures. Mm -hmm. by Paul Zweig. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing properly. Oh, okay. It, mm -hmm. uh -huh. And it is the most beautifully written memoir. I, I think if I had to describe it to someone, I'd say that this is the Stephen King of memoir. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. It's beautifully written. And so I, I love that feeling that when I get a book, I just got it because like lately I do think about debt a lot because mm -hmm. I'm a Buddhist, but because of my mom and all of these things, I don't know if I'm preparing for myself. So this title appealed to me and it's a real beautiful, it turns out that he died quite young, this writer, mm -hmm. and he was contemporary of Woody Allen. He would have been highly educated, kind mm -hmm. of Woody Allen. Not that okay. Woody Allen is not educated, but the way he's a comedian and he has a certain way of writing and a certain way of speaking, mm -hmm. but he's just super. So I, I've fallen in love. He died of cancer quite young and he, he was diagnosed when he was 43. And oh. so, and it's also, you would love it because it's an historical record because he didn't really identify, I think, with being from Brooklyn. And so he went off to Paris and he lived in Paris for 10 years after the war had ended. And it's and talks about what's happening in Paris. So it's yes. a historical, it's a beautifully observed historical record of what is going on in Paris. 
And then I think I'm getting to the end, which is, Uh-oh. I think, the part about his sickness and stuff. But not for a moment yet, even though all of this is to come, does he have a really negative aspect to it? You're saying to me in the beginning that we have to transform the, the negativity into positivity. And it's so true. And he does it beautifully as well. So do you have someone you've fallen in love with recently or your favorite? Uh, this one woman, Sherilyn Kenyon, she writes the Dark Hunter series. I've got a lot of her books out now, if you can see. Yeah, you probably can't see from there. But there's a shelf over here that's got a lot of her books on it. And uh, yeah, that's a Dark Hunter series. But she's written some historical books and she's written considered paranormal. And she's gotten a big fan base just from the Dark Hunter series. But she, uh, I got to meet her a couple of times at different RWA functions. And she gave us a little bit about her history and everything. And she had a um, hard time getting started. But when I heard her story, I thought, she can do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And she does the men really well, their thoughts and what they go through. And even though they might be crazy characters, not crazy, but mean characters, you fall in love with them because they have a heart. And uh, she grew up with a lot of brothers. So I figured that's probably how she was able to write men really well. Uh-huh. But she, just the way she went about getting started in writing, I thought that's what I want to be when I grow up. But she's, I think she's younger than me. Yeah. And but anybody yeah. can inspire you, isn't it? Yeah. But she has, she's inspired me. I love her stories. I haven't had as much time to read her stories as I'd like. I, I've read up to a certain point, but she's written so many more books since then. But she remembered me after years of not seeing her. She remembered my name and everything, and she autographed oh. a book for me. And it was just... I got really mine autographed as well. I, I did get a kick out of yeah. uh, meeting Joanna Penn in um, London at the conference. Yeah. Yes, she signed it for me. It's so nice, isn't it? To get yeah. an excited oh, yeah. get yeah. an author to sign your book. I thought yeah. so. Yeah. So and um, tell me, where can people find you? You obviously your website is where everything is. Pretty much. I haven't gotten your interview done yet, but I'm hoping to get it done this week. And then but it's estherlopez.com or author blogspot dot estherlopez.com that yours will be the first one on the new website and then uh, the writing and photographic services llc.com is the publisher's website but if you click on the books it'll take you to that pub that website if you want to purchase the books and so on twitter i must um go and check and follow you Esther lopez one the number one i'm on instagram but I have two accounts there. One was made by mistake because I couldn't remember the password. So I had to have another one. But it's Esther Lopez 2956. That's Instagram. And then Facebook, Esther Lopez author. What else? I'm on Pinterest, but I can't remember what that is. Okay. Are you on TikTok? Yes and no. I, I started an account, but I haven't done anything with it. I, I think hoping- you have terrific stories. Um, I think you, you should do more. TikTok. I I think I have decided myself that I am actually going to read parts of the books I'm reading at the moment because I cannot go and do yet more things. 
I have enough things going. And mm -hmm. Esther, thank you very much for coming to the Little Painting oh. League. Okay. Last. Thank you for having me. Yes, I, I'm sure you can come back again whenever the book is ready. We'll do more of these chats. I totally enjoyed okay. it. Okay, and I enjoyed lots it. Lots of yeah. on that note. <laughs> <laughs> I shall say goodbye for now and wonderful to meet you. Thank you very much for yeah. coming. And okay. thank I you for having me. again. No problem. Okay. Pleasure. See you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell icon to stay updated. Love our content? Let others discover the podcast by leaving a review. Your support is crucial to our journey. Thank you.